It is really a delight to be able to preach this morning. Uh, I'd like to finish off this um, little section that I've been doing. And I've called my message this morning, Life in the Salad Bowl. Life in the Salad Bowl, and I hope that it will become clear quite soon why I've called it that. <laughs> but um, just to, for those of you that weren't here, last Sunday I began to talk about the kingdom and the church and how the two work together. And I want to kind of have a second section today, which really is kind of taking that idea and unpacking it a little bit more. Um, so just to kind of get us into gear this morning and to remind you of what I said last week, I'd just like to have a five-minute kind of recap of what I, I said to you last week. And my main concern that I addressed last week was this, was just to simply to say that there, in, in the church in general over the last five years, I've, I've heard this kind of language which has disturbed me a little bit, which talks about the kingdom of God in a way that diminishes the importance of the local church. It's like people have started um, using a language that pits the kingdom against the church. And I, it disturbs me. I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's, it's, it's uh, encouraging. And I think it has to do largely with how people understand the word kingdom. And I said to you last week that it's my, my conviction that the word kingdom is used in a flabby way in the church. And when I say church, I'm talking about the broader church. In general, it's used in a flabby way. It's used in an undefined way. And so what happens is when people speak about the kingdom, the word kingdom means different things to different people. And so when we use that word, we don't all mean the same thing. And I think we, we as Christians, it's part of our, our duty, in a sense, to think rigorously about the Christian life and to be quite clear what we mean when we use words. So that we can be clear, that we can communicate clearly to people, and people can understand exactly what we mean when we say things. I think that's just part of the Christian life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. We have a duty to think clearly as Christians, and to be encouraging each other to think clearly about what the Word says. And so, I reminded you of Byron. Remember, Byron said this, Words are things... And a small drop of ink falling like dew upon a thought produces that which makes thousands, perhaps millions, think. I love that encouragement from Byron. And so I said to you, let's think clearly about this word kingdom. What do we understand by the word kingdom and how are we using it? And I said there are four ways that I've seen the word used over the last five years. People, firstly, in the church, use the word kingdom as an ethical word. And so I said to you, there are issues of saving the planet, taking care of creation, issues of justice, issues of mercy, taking care of refugees. When we do that stuff, we are doing the work of the kingdom. Yep. And so people use it as an ethical word. And it's not, it's not bad. That's good that we understand that something of, God king, of God's kingdom comes when we address those issues. But it's not the fullness of the kingdom. All right. Secondly, I said... Some people use the word uh, kingdom to describe gifts of power. So charismatics like this definition of the word. So where we see healing, where we see signs and wonders, where we see God's power, when we experience His, pre His presence, then that is the kingdom. Then we are starting to experience the kingdom. And that is true. Wherever Jesus went, He preached, and people were set free from demons, and they were healed and delivered, and something of the kingdom came. So I said to you last week, it's great, that's wonderful, we need more of that, but it's not the fullness of the kingdom. So it, 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 
We need to save the planet. We need to see people healed, saved, and delivered, but it's not the fullness of the kingdom. Thirdly, I said to you that some say the kingdom is the church. And that is, uh, comes from Catholicism and, and uh, Eastern Orthodox Church. They, can't, they, they don't make the distinction between the church and the kingdom. It's one and the same. And they see the church and the kingdom as one and the same thing. And um, I said to you that certainly the Reformation taught us something different. And it's my conviction that the church and the state need to be different, need to be separate. So that the, the gospel speaks into issues of politics. That we don't get it all mixed up. All right? And uh, that's the story of, of, of church history, is that wherever politicians get involved in the church, it's bad news. Bad, bad news. And we need to separate the two. Okay, and then our third, fourthly, I said to you that the kingdom can also be associated with this idea of a perfect future that is coming. Utopia that is coming. And we see that when we read John's Gospel or Revelation. Uh, things on earth here are bad, but when the kingdom comes... The fullness of the kingdom comes, there's going to be a perfect future for us. And so I said to you, those are the four things that I've seen we, we can, um, how we can understand the kingdom. But then I challenged you and said, well, what does the Bible say the kingdom is? And I, I said, let's look at a, a kingdom definition out of the scripture. And uh, again, just to refresh you in terms of why I'm saying this, because for many, the kingdom has become good and the church has become bad. And so I said to you, have you used this I heard people use this language. We want to be kingdom people, not church people. The church must get outside of the box and get into the world and do kingdom work. And I said to you, it's not, it's not a healthy thing to uh, compare the kingdom with the church and to pit the one against the other. I said to you this, Jesus prayed when he taught us as his disciples to pray. He said, what should we pray? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We all know the, 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 the disciples' prayer. And yet Jesus also said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In fact, that's what Jesus said he is building is his church. And so Jesus didn't put the kingdom against the church and neither should we. We should see the kingdom come through the church. And that was my encouragement to you last week. And so I said, um, let's try and understand how Jesus would have used that word as a first century Jew, because he thought with that word, didn't he? And he spoke a lot about the kingdom. John, Luke 4, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus used the word all the time. So he was thinking of that word as a first century Jew. And I said to you, my challenge to you was to go and do some work. Go and have a look at the scripture yourself. And I found in the Old Testament there are 200 scriptures that speak about the kingdom in some way. 200. Of the 200, 199 have five common things, and there's one exception, which I said to you is Psalm 103, verse 17, which talks about God's kingdom ruling over everything. And that is true. God's, there's a sovereign work of God that is at work in all of the world, all right? But the other 199, and so my, my, my basic logic is, if 199 speak of the kingdom in a certain way, I want to th- learn from that. <laughs> and how do those, what, what, what is the co- five common things? Here they are. I said the best way we can understand the kingdom in terms of how Jesus would have thought of the kingdom in the Old Testament is that a kingdom is simply a people governed by a king. A kingdom is a people governed 
by a king. And we looked at the Old Testament and we looked at the New Testament equivalent of, equivalent of that. And I don't have time right now. This is supposed to be a summary. Please go and listen to the podcast if you weren't here last week. And I said there are five constants in those 199 scriptures. One, the kingdom has God as its king. The first thing. God is the ruler of this kingdom. Second, the kingdom has a king who rules over people. And thirdly, the kingdom is a people, and it has a people. So there's a sense, it's a, in the Old Testament, it was the people of Israel. In the New Testament, it's the church that's been grafted in. The kingdom is a people. It has a people. Fourthly, the kingdom is ruled by a king, by certain laws and governances. In the Old Testament, it was Moses' rules and laws. In the New Testament, we're under new covenant of grace. We are ruled by the law of love. That's what the, the Scripture says. And in the, in the, in the um, Old Testament, there is a land for the people. In the New Testament, there's this reality that wherever we go, we are mobile temples. When Jesus is dwelling on the inside of us, we are mobile temples. We take the presence of God wherever we go. And wherever we go, we, we influence business, we influence art, we influence the culture, we influence other people. Whatever our gifting is, we, take the, we are a personification of the life of Christ. And the kingdom comes wherever Christians go and exert influence. Yeah? Very simple definition. A kingdom is a people governed by a king. And so in that sense, the kingdom comes through us as the local church and influences everything that God has and wants to do in the world. All right? So that's the summary of what I wanted to start with. And then I wanted to focus, uh, hence my title this morning, Life in the Salad Bowl, because I was thinking of this. If that's what the kingdom is, if that's how we should understand the kingdom, a people governed by a king, and we are that people, the church, and wherever we go, we exert influence into community. How did Jesus understand the Christian life? And how did Paul understand the Christian life? And we would do well to learn from... Um, how they framed, how they lived out this belief of the kingdom. And so that's my starting point this morning. And again, if I was to ask the question, how do we frame the Christian life? I think I could come up with a couple of answers. First of all, for some Christians, they frame the, 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 the Christian life in this way. It's, they, they understand the Christian life as an order of salvation. I would put it like this. We are called by God. We are elected by God. He draws us by His Spirit. He regenerates us. We are born again. Uh, he, that's the, the word. Is we are justified. We are saved, however you want to put it. And then He begins to work in our lives. We are sanctified. He makes us more like His Son. And one day we'll be glorified. So some Christians would understand the Christian life by something of that process that happens on the inside. We're saved. God draws us. We repent. We're saved. He changes us. We become more like Jesus. That's the Christian life. And that is true. That is something of the Christian life. But my concern is it doesn't move, if we understand the Christian life like that, it doesn't move us towards the community of the church. Why? Because you can be a Christian like that all by yourself. You can be called, drawn, repent, saved. God can be working on the inside of you. But it doesn't draw you towards God's community. And we need to be careful of that. Secondly, we can understand the Christian life as this cosmic act of God that is, is, is coming to redeem the world and is trying to redeem creation and we're involved in that, in that process as believers and that's a wonderful thing. It's a very important thing. Again, I want to say that the danger of that is that you can get involved in all sorts of things that help to redeem the planet without being saved. <laughs> so we, 
that doesn't help us to love the church either, does it? If we are saving the whales and uh, the rainforests. Those are all very, very good things and need to be done, but it, that's not, that doesn't help us to find Christ. Are you with me? So then how did Paul view the Christian life? And I'm going to have a look at Jesus in a short while. You see, the more I read the Scripture, the more I read the Gospels, the more I read Paul's letters, for Paul, the Christian life was fellowship with other believers. That was the Christian life. That's how he framed his Christian life, was fellowship with other believers. I've said this to you before, let me say it again. One of the first letters that he writes is Galatians that we've been studying. And what does he say over and over again in Galatians? There's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no male, there's no female. All are one in Christ. Towards the end of of his ministry, when he's in jail in Rome and he's writing letters to encourage the church, one of the last letters that he writes is Colossians. And what is he still saying in Colossians? There's no slave, there's no free. There's no Scythian, he says. And I've said this before. Scythian was a slang word for a kind of person from the country. So he's trying to break down another level of, people, uh, of how people separate each other. He's saying, you guys that are all sophisticated in the, in the cities and you think you kind of got it, got it all together because you're kind of like in the hip places where all the culture happens, don't look down on someone from the country as a country pumpkin because there's no difference between you and them. They are, we are all one in Christ. Paul is breaking down all the time these barriers that people put in place from culture, background, financial um, status, whatever it is. The gospel breaks those barriers down all the time. And so Paul imagined the church as a community of difference. I want to call it that. The church is a community of difference. Now, can I use a, I love food, as some of you know. Can I use a food analogy to help us understand that? Hence my title, Life in the Salad Bowl. (laughs) There's three ways of making a salad. Um, When I grew up, you had salad. You had lettuce and tomatoes. And now we have all these varieties of lettuce. Have you noticed that? Iceberg lettuce, romaine lettuce. uh, Help me, some other types. Anyway, Sorry? Rocket. Oh, yes, no, that's another thing. That's, that's, the rocket is now added. That's true. So we can have all these exotic sort of lettuce salad ingredients. And um, like I said, when I grew up, lettuce, tomato. Now we have this exotic... Uh, I still haven't got my mind around kale, though. Kale is like... It's not bad. It's not bad. I, well, Helen made it the other day with crispy kale with um, sesame seeds. That was quite nice. But, I mean... I'm still battling a little bit with kale as a salad ingredient. But my point is this, that um, you can make salads in different ways. I, I have a friend called Tim Goodwin who used to come around to our house when we first planted the church, and he had a thing called a, the best bit salad. And basically what it was was all the things that you liked in the salad without the lettuce. Now, I like that, best bit salad. Anyway, but you can make a salad in three ways. You can separate out all the pieces... You can have olive, your lettuce, your cucumber, tomato. You can put them all in little pots and you can serve it as salad and say, let's eat salad. And people can do that. They can eat all the little separate bits. Then you can have it a second way that I discovered in America, where basically you have all these wonderful ingredients and it is just drenched with ranch dressing or whatever dressing it is. And all you can taste is the dressing. You can't actually taste the salad. All right? Or there's a third way, which I much prefer, 
where you have just enough quality olive oil and perhaps a dash of balsamic vinegar and you can taste every ingredient and it comes alive in your mouth because you've got it exactly right. So what's the point? The point is this. That's what the church is. The church should not be a segregated concoction of different parts. It is a fellowship of difference. So, we shouldn't segregate the church according to culture or accent or financial um, prosperity. No, 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 no. Paul said, none of that counts anymore. We are all one in Christ. And so it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your accent is. It doesn't matter what your prosperity is economically. We are all one in Christ, and the church is a fellowship of different people, drawn together by the oil of the Holy Spirit, infused with the grace of God and the love of God, so that we can all get on and start loving each other and learn to enjoy the differences that all of us have. That is the church. It's life in the salad bowl. And so, in the world, you hang out with people that are exactly the same as you. So, if you love tennis, you hang out with tennis players. If you love hockey, you hang out with hockey guys or girls. If you love art, you hang out with all the artists. And there's something easy and wonderful about hanging about with people that are exactly the same as you. But what does Paul say? He says, no, God loves the world. Jesus says, I've come to save the world. And so the church is not a place that is, is thrown together and one overwhelming dominant culture just dominates everything. It's not segregated out. It is all of us together learning through the grace of God to get on with each other and love each other even though we are different. You see, and I th my concern is that some, I was reading this article written by a, a black American pastor who also is trying in, in, the, in the, the south of, of, of America to try and have a multicultural congregation himself. And uh, he, he said this, he said it was very interesting that even where it, people succeed, there seems to be one culture that still is the dominant culture. And I think we have to work really hard at not letting one culture dominate the church. So what I want to say is this. How can our worship style change over this year to reflect something more of a multicultural nature? Or is the dominant culture a Matt Redmond kind of culture? I love Matt Redmond. I've got no problem against Matt Redmond or Tim Hughes or any of the Hillsong guys. I love what they do. But is it the dominant culture that every time we worship, it's the same style? <laughs> what about getting some, some sisters on the stage who can sing in a gospel-style way to have a little bit of difference culturally? Come on now. Why? Because it's a fellowship of difference. Is that easy? I'm not saying it's easy. Is it, is it God's way? I'm saying absolutely it's God's way. It must be God's way. Why? Because he's a, his heart is for all people in every nation of the, of the world. So I'm, I'm, my challenge, I'm not saying I know how to do this. I'm saying this year we're going to go on a journey as a church. We're going to explore a little bit. We're going to say, okay, well, how can we do it? How can, how can we, in a small way, start this journey of experiencing something that is a little bit different and enjoying all the pieces that God is adding to this congregation? I don't know about you, but that excites me. So here, I just want to look... Two things to finish. 
The grace of God, which I've spoken about a lot, and the love of God. How Jesus and Paul saw the grace of God and the love of God. So I want to just look at grace as part of this ingredient that helps us to get on with each other. People that are different from each other. If I asked you for a definition of grace, I'm sure most people would say this. Grace is the unmerited favor of God towards us. It's, we get what we don't deserve when God is gracious. And that's a brilliant definition. But I want to encourage you that grace is so much bigger than that. Grace is also freedom. Grace is justification. Grace is reconciliation with each other. Grace is peace. Grace is the ability, the power to do what is right. Good works, the, the scripture says. Grace is the ability to forgive each other. Grace is faith. Grace is love. It's, I would summarize grace in this way and say that grace is that quality of God's power that turns all of us that are sinners into saints. That's the grace of God, this incredible transforming power on the inside of us that does all of those things. We don't deserve it, but God lavishes us with His grace. And so, here's six little things for you to, to help you understand what I'm trying to say. We talk about grace as it's God. It's God. The fullness of grace is God, right? Secondly, we say grace is super abundant. And I always, whenever I think of the grace of God, I love to remind myself of that first wedding feast in Canaan. Why? Because it shows in the picture of how generous God is when He pours His grace out on our lives. Here are all the wedding guests. They've got their one glass of wine, and uh, the budget has been done for the wedding, and they've done their best at the wedding to get the best wine they can, and um, Jesus comes along, and He says, there's not enough wine. And this is how gracious God is. He says, you see those big, massive, massive jars? Go fill those with, with water, and He turns dozens of jars of water into the best wine they've ever tasted. That is how gracious God is. We have our little portion, and we're trying our best, and we've measured it out, and it's all we can afford, and God comes and He says, my friend, I've got so much more for you. See this bucket here? You see this great big thing? It's full of my grace, and I'm going to pour it out over your life, and it's the best wine we've ever tasted. That's how gracious God is. Super abundant in generosity. Thirdly, His grace always has priority. This is what I mean. We don't save ourselves. He saves us. We don't initiate anything. He initiates everything. Fourthly, the grace of God comes to us regardless of who we are. I love that. You know, in, the, in, in Paul's world, um, the rank in society was signified by your robe. So if you were really a uh, very uh, senior person in politics in the Roman Empire, what did you wear? You wore a purple robe. And everyone knew who you were because you had the purple robe. So there was this kind of sense of class that was clearly communicated through the clothes that you wore. Well, you might say that's a good example from the ancient world. Well, what, about, what about our current society? Well, I want to put it to you that our society still values class. It still, it still segregates people around how much money they earn, where they are from, whether they're from the north or from the south, whether they speak with a Yorkshire accent or they speak with a, a neutral southern accent, whether they're an immigrant or they were born here. Our, our society still segregates people according to class. Let's not pretend that we don't. And you know what Paul says? Paul says none of that matters anymore. He says none of that matters. You are all one in Christ. 
So let the grace of God have come to you. It doesn't matter where you're from. It matters where you're going. That's what I keep saying. Fourth, um, gr- fifth, grace is transformative. I am not loving in myself. I am not holy in myself. But you know what the grace of God does? It connects me in my life to someone who is holy, to someone who is kind, to someone who is loving. And as I focus on Him, as I become more and more like Jesus, I start to become kinder, more generous, less angry, and more like Jesus, and less like the fallen ant. Are you with me? That's how it works. I hope, if you spoke to Helen, I hope you're going to back me up here, my darling. <laughs> that she would say, after, 18, after 23 years of marriage, that I'm not the same person that she married. I hope I'm not. I hope I am kinder. I hope I am more generous. I hope I am a good father. I hope all of those things, because I've spent 23 years with Helen, walking with Jesus, and I hope that she would say, I am very different to the man that she married. I hope so. Why? Because that's the grace of God. The grace of God changes us to be more and more like His Son. And lastly, grace is non-reciprocative. What does that mean? It means we can extend grace to each other, but it doesn't go... God extends grace to us, and we extend grace to each other, but we don't, it doesn't go back to God from us. It comes from God to us. Are you with me? And so I want to encourage you, you know, I was thinking of Downton Abbey when I was thinking of this thing of class. It's a very good picture, isn't it? And everyone loves Downton Abbey. But you know, when you, when you look at those servants who are underneath in the kitchen and doing their thing, and every whim of those obnoxious people upstairs, and most of them are obnoxious, let's, let's, let's face it, they kind of, they call the shots. And these servants run around and do whatever they need to do, and there's... It doesn't mean that the people who are upstairs are more moral, kinder, more loving. It's just their rank. Whatever they say goes. That is not how the kingdom works. (laughs) It's not how the kingdom works. There's no rank in the kingdom. We're all one in Christ. Amen? You should say amen to that. Secondly, how did Jesus understand love? And I finish with this. This this, 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 um, portion of grace that we need to learn to extend it to each other. And there's this thing of love that Jesus says is the basis of his kingdom. So how do we understand that? Well, you know, again, I want to just point you to the fact that both Paul and, and Jesus were Jews, and as good Jews, they would have prayed this every morning. They would have started the day with this prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then what does Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount? He adds, he points people to Leviticus 19 and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law is summarized on these two things. Jesus was motivated in everything he did by love for us and we should be in all things motivated by love for each other. Now it's easy to say, it's harder to live in, isn't it? But I want, to, I want to encourage you in this way. Why do you think that Paul, having said that about Jesus, why do you think that Paul over and over again in his letters is so, so careful, so powerfully pointing us back to the grace of God all the time? 
Because he knows he isn't a salad bowl. He knows that he preached first to the Jews, and it was easy when it was monocultural, when they were all the people getting saved were Jewish people. But then Paul goes to Gentile cities, and suddenly there's a bunch of people that are getting saved that are not Jews. They're Greek. They're from all over the, East, the, the Mediterranean basin. They speak different languages. Their culture is not Jewish. And Paul now suddenly is like going, how do I get these people to get on with each other? How do I get them to accept each other? How do I get them to work towards a common goal? He says, there's only one thing I can do. I can point them to the love and the grace of God that saved me and trust that same grace of God is transforming them so they can get on with each other. He knows that church life is life in a salad bowl. Different ingredients brought together and fused together by the power of the Holy Spirit, transforming people from the inside and helping them to love each other, regardless of the differences. He knows he needs grace-empowered love. That's why he comes back to it over and over again. So I would like to, as I conclude, to help you to think a little bit about what love is. And when I say, you might say, what, is, what an extraordinary question. I know what love is. I want to say this to you, kindly. Can we think about love without referencing our culture? Can we think about love without referencing Hollywood movies? Can we think about love without referencing any of that? Why? Because the Bible says God is love. So I put it to you this morning that if we watch God, we will fully understand what love is in the way that the Bible defines love. I want to encourage you to take your eyes off those other things, and I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying they're sometimes not helpful to help us understand what love is biblically. And when I look at love and the story of of the people of Israel in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, four things come up. Very simple. I want to encourage you with these. Four things come up. Whenever the Bible speaks about love, it speaks about love in terms of covenant. And that's a very... Maybe arbitrary word. Well, I want to give you some things that will help you to understand what covenant is. For me, covenant is a rugged commitment. It's a rugged commitment. It's not a sweet, charming story. Our, our, our culture is full of sweet, charming stories. Hollywood bombards us with sweet, charming love stories. That is not the covenant of the Bible. It is a rugged commitment. When I read the Old Testament, and I read the story of Israel, I read the, the story of the Gospels, there are good days, and there are bad days. How many of you that have been married for more than one day know that you have good days, and you have bad days? Marriage is a rugged commitment. It's not a sentimental, sweet, charming story. I mean, this, there are, it, it can be, and I hope your marriages are sweet, charming stories, but underlying that is a rugged commitment to each other. And this is what I'm trying to point you to. Whenever you read the Old Testament, this is God's promise to His people. I am with you. When you behave well, I'm with you. When you disobey, I'm still with you. And what does he promise? He gives them pictures. That's why I want to put up that thing, Jesus is light. Why? Because Jesus always spoke to, uh, God spoke to his people in pictures. He says, when you're going through the desert, by night, I will have a pillar of fire to let you know that I am with you. 
and by day there will be a cloud that will follow you wherever you go to, so that you can know I am with you. That's his promise all the time. I'm with you. There's this rugged commitment from God's side to show his people that he's with them. And what does Jesus say? He says, don't worry when I go because God will send another. And he is the Holy Spirit. And what is Jesus' words? He will be with you. It's still God's presence with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, pillar of fire, cloud. In the person of Jesus in the New Testament, what did we celebrate over Easter, um, over Christmas? Emmanuel. God is with us in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus goes, he says, don't worry, I'm still leaving someone with you, the person of the Holy Spirit, so that you can know that God is with you every moment of every day. There's a rugged commitment from God's side to show us that he is with us. So, that's how we need to start learning to love each other. And I said to you this to you the other day, you might say, well, I don't think I have any, enemy, any, any enemies. What are you saying about loving? I don't have any enemies. Well, who, who is my neighbor? I put it to you that your enemies are the people that you least want to go to coffee with. That's how you know your enemy is. There's, <laughs> if there's something inside of you like, mm, I don't really want to meet that person for coffee. Oh, just something grating on the inside. That's your enemy. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. And this is how we show rugged commitment. We show rugged commitment by being with people. By being with people. There's a theme of witness that I'm trying to say. And also... This theme of witness, witness goes with the theme of forness. How do you know? How can someone know that you are for them? You prepare to spend time with them. If you're not prepared to spend time with them, how can they ever know that you are for them? And so, what does Jesus say? Um, he, he says, "He is our advocate. He's the one that speaks for us. He's the one that defends us when the devil accuses us." That's the same. Uh, that something in our lives that we need to get a deeper understanding of. That people will know that we are for them because we are prepared to be with them. You hear what I'm saying? Especially as we seek to build a multicultural church. Oh, I don't eat that food. You know what that's saying? I'm not prepared to be with you. <laughs> in what you eat. How can we ever get people to know that we are for them if we won't even eat what they eat? Are you with me? It's a very practical thing. And so that's why in the past we've had um, meals and we're going to have more meals where we're going to ask you to bring your food from your culture so we can be with each other, that we can learn to be for each other, that I can, I can blow my brains out with um, Toxus Chili from uh, West Africa. That's what he eats, or some Singaporean Malaysian food, or whatever it is. But we can enjoy each other's culture and learn to be with each other so that we can communicate to each other we are for each other. Are you with me? And why do we do that? Here's the fourth little thing of what... So, the Bible speaks of love. It's a rugged commitment. It's a, second, it's a rugged commitment to be with. Thirdly, it's a rugged commitment to be for people. And fourthly... 
It's a rugged commitment to be with people and for people for a very clear purpose, that they can become more and more like Jesus. That's, that's what we want. We want the presence of Jesus to transform us so that we are holy as He is holy, that we love each other unto Christ-likeness. Helen has been very good for me in terms of this iron sharpening iron. You know, when you're married for, for, for a while, you can't fool anyone anymore, can you? <laughs> you can fool your friends for a while, but not your wife. Because why? She's lived with you 24-7 for many, many years, and she knows exactly what you like. Isn't it true? That's why marriage is such a wonderful um, way to, to, to help each other become like Jesus. We can fool some people, but you can't fool your wife. You can't fool your husband. They know you too well. And so our wives and husbands have this incredible privilege to speak into our lives so that they can say things that no one else can say. And if there is a rugged commitment, which there is in marriage, then you don't run away when that person speaks something to you and says, you actually need to stop that. That is obnoxious. (laughs) Don't do that anymore. Yeah? And that's the privilege we have as married people. And for those of you that are not married, um, it's it's not a comparison thing, Jesus is still there showing us all what needs to change. And we can encourage each other through friendship. But there's something that happens when you're in a, in a marriage relationship that enables you to work that out at a different level. And it's an incredible privilege. We love each other with a right commitment. We are with each other. We are for each other so that we can become more and more like Jesus. So all of this is to say that we want to live out the kingdom of God through the church. All of this is to say that as we go forward as a church, we want to see people from every tribe and people group and nation that whoever God adds here, we want people to find a home. We want people to be rooted in Christ. We want people to be planted in this as a family so that we can be fruitful through our lives. You've heard me say these things over and over again. And I'll put it to you that as we learn to love like this with a rugged commitment to each other and a rugged commitment knowing that that covenant first is, comes from God towards us, we can be for people, we can be with people, and we can enjoy the differences that God has for us as a church community. Amen? So now we are going to go and uh, uh, have coffee. But it's only quarter past 11. Now I want to ask you to be incredibly brave. Incredibly brave. (laughs) Someone said to me the other day, they don't like it when I ask them to do this. Because they're shy. Well, now I'm asking you to be incredibly brave. You know, you you mustn't leave, uh, Ulrika. I know she's doing the coffee. I'm just teasing. I want you to go to someone who's from a different culture from you. And for just five minutes, just introduce yourself. Ask where they're from, where their family's from. Just find out a little bit about them, their backgrounds, what they love doing, that we can in some way communicate that we want to get to know each other and start to begin on this journey of of getting to know people in a way that is communicating we are for them. Can we do that? Okay, so I know Jenny's from Nigeria, Zach's from Uganda, Derek is from Zimbabwe, you are from South Africa, you are English, Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese. Uh, David, where, what's your background? Ghana and England. Well, there's, uh, there's Brazilians, there's... Uh, English, 
there's uh, Jersey, no, sorry, Guernsey, sorry, Guernsey, 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 there's uh, Malaysia, English, Yorkshire, I mean that is different, isn't it, eh? You've got to let's play it. That's not England. Yorkshire, the Caribbean, some more English people behind there, South Africa here. English. Is Hemel Hempstead part of England? <laughs> so what I'm saying is, I've just mentioned some guys, that, guys from the Caribbean background at the back there, Nigeria, Zimbabwe. How many is that? That's 15 different backgrounds. Kenya, 16. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, that thrills me. I think that is incredible. Can I ask you to get out of your seat, go and make friends with someone who's not from your background, someone who's not from your culture, who speaks with a different accent from you, and then invite them for a cup of coffee, and we're going to enjoy coffee together. Amen? No? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace that enables us to love people that are different from us. And I pray, Lord, that we would experience more and more of your grace on us as a community this year as we learn to love each other with that same rugged commitment that you've demonstrated towards us. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.